Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. My name is James. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Nick Jenkins, the Medical Director of West Suffolk NHS Foundation Trust. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Nick. You're welcome, James. Nice to be here. The reason I wanted to get you on to talk about the National Physician Associate Expansion Programme that you headed up a few years ago. Yeah, it does feel like a long time ago, but yeah, I'm very happy to talk about that. Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about your history with the PA profession? Yeah, sure. Well, that's quite a story. So I was part of an NHS leadership development programme where uh, we went to the States as, as a part of the programme and we, we spent a month in Boston studying at, at Harvard. And, and while we were there, we had the opportunity arranged by one of our group to visit the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And I'd never been to a US hospital and that seemed like too good an opportunity to miss. They sort of paired us off into our, our chosen specialties, if you like. And so because I'm an emergency physician, I went off to the emergency department and was introduced to one of the attendings in the emergency department. And I spent perhaps the half an hour that I was watching, it became fairly clear that the, and I, and I said this to, to, to the guy who, who later became a friend. Ah, I said, yeah, the, the thing is, I think our emergency department would run so much better if we had as many residents as, as you do. You seem to have about the same number of attendings on the on the floor as as there are consultants in in my emergency department. At least at, at this time of day, it was probably it was probably half past four in the afternoon, James. But but there's residents everywhere, and yeah, you know, that one who just came and presented to you obviously knows what she's talking about. Gave you a really clear, concise history and examination of the patient and you only needed to spend five minutes with that patient to confirm everything that 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 she'd said to be the case was the case and that the plan the management plan was was right and he laughed and he said oh that's not a resident that's a PA and I said it's it's a what because I didn't know I'm afraid what a PA was then and he said oh yeah physician assistant they're awesome uh so I was really intrigued what was this thing that, that had looked to me like a resident uh but but wasn't and that was how I first ever came across PAs. So you'd gone to Boston and you'd seen firsthand a brilliant physician assistant working in the emergency department what happened next in the story? Hmm. So as part of our uh, leadership development program we were required to come up with a project something that we could do to help some some bit of the NHS and I, I came back to the UK to find out you know whether we had any physician assistants in the UK and if not could I work out why not and could I find a way that we might be able to get some if we didn't have any I I really didn't know what the what the lie of the land was and we're talking about I think it was probably 2015 James and so I came back and found that we did have some PAs and I I met the brilliant people at the George's PA program as well as some other key influencers in in the PA world people like Jim Parle who I bet many of your many of your listeners will have will have heard of and was able to discover that yeah there were really high quality physician associates and I discovered that that's what the UK name was and such a better name I think um, 
Georges were, were turning out about 20 PAs a year, I think, at that point. And they were mostly the, the world's best kept secret, of course, because if you had one, the last thing you wanted to do was tell anybody else because they were in such short supply that, that the, the risk was somebody would pinch them off you. And people like Natalie King at Surrey and Sussex Healthcare had, had tra- she trained with, with PAs as a, as a registrar at George's, I think. And then when she became a consultant in acute medicine at, at, at SASH, she, she began building what I think is probably one of the most successful PA, PA teams in medicine in the UK talking to them about what they were doing and and talking this was just at the time where there was chat about the the big expansion in PA numbers that has occurred in the UK over the last five years and people like Jim Powell were were front and center with with planning that expansion and I made some connections with the faculty and I was able to to work out what was going on and I think then, at that time, there was the school in Birmingham, the school at George's and the school in Aberdeen. And I think I think that was all there was then. Um, it was going to be very difficult for, for me to attract them because they were produced in, in such small numbers and, and lapped up by people who already knew how good they were. So I was slightly frustrated by that. And I could see that there was this, well, what I thought was a real risk of a massive expansion in PA numbers without it being altogether clear what was going to happen in employment terms to those PAs once they'd been freshly minted by the new PA schools that were that were cropping up and the and the existing ones that were expanding. And I remember having a conversation with Vari Drennan, who you'll know has done quite a lot of the academic work in, in physician physician associate studies and and she described to me something that 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 she called the receptive environment which felt to me like it meant how do these PAs land when they're when they come out into practice and I was concerned that a PA would appear and they wouldn't know what to do with one they wouldn't know how one worked they wouldn't know how best to use one and they would if we weren't careful, ruin the opportunity. And that if we got it wrong, we could really set back this opportunity by, by another generation because it would take that long, I think, to come to come round again. So program that I developed um, and ran from, from Hillingdon Hospitals in Northwest London, where I was based, was to try and bring experienced PAs, and that was a key, that was a key facet of the program to places that had no experience of PAs. And that was the other key facet. So we were trying to create the receptive environment for future UK new grad PAs that when they appeared in practice, there'd be people who knew how to work with PAs because they'd have had the experience of these US PAs who definitely had as part of their role in our program was to train, if you like, the the environments they were working in to be ready for UK new grad PAs when they came in in large numbers. Excellent. So almost creating the open door that the the homegrown UK PA students can push on later. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in in many of the places where our expansion program PAs went, that's that's exactly that's exactly what's happened. 
uh, and one of the key things about the expansion program, James, we were determined that the organisations who benefited from our expansion program PAs should pay for them and should pay market value. There was in more than one place and in more than one profession, a bit of history in the NHS of, of pilots or trials of, of roles where the, the, the new role or the new member of the team was presented as, as a free good. And the trouble is then, as soon as whatever that pilot is or that, that test and learn environment is concluded, then suddenly this role and sometimes even the poor individual in it becomes a cost pressure and becomes something that can't necessarily be afforded. And I'd seen that happen and I, I was very keen that we avoided that. And so every single institution that, that took National Physician Associate Expansion Programme PAs paid and we chose to pay the NPPAs slightly differently to the Agenda for Change set up that that I know our PAs are, are paid under now. It seemed odd to me that the physician associates who we know work in the medical model didn't have a pay scale that, that sort of mirrored the medical model and that that would, I don't doubt, mean that immediately qualified PAs would earn less than immediately qualified PAs do at the moment. But I think there would and could have been a competency-based pay progression over a significant number of pay points that would have ended up with clinically phenomenal PAs being able to earn significantly more than band seven or eight A money. And the majority of PAs, I think, would have progressed through some of those pay points to somewhere in the middle, um, but that the pay would have been competency related rather than time served or, or somehow related just to one particular fixed band. I remember meeting in the States, two, there are two PAs who stick in my mind as, as amazing ambassadors of your profession. I met a PA at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston who, who when she introduced herself to me, she said she was a cancer PA. And I am aware that there's sometimes translational difficulties between the English that we speak in this country and the English that they speak in America. So I said to her, oh, do you mean oncology? Just checking I'd understood the role she had. And she said, well, yeah, oncology, I've done I've done solid onc and liquid onc, which I think is hematological oncology as far as I've come to understand it. And I've done adults and kids. And currently what I do is run a palliative care unit for children here in the hospital. Now, thinking about that from my medical perspective, I think there are probably four or five different medical specialties there. There's hematology, oncology, pediatrics, palliative medicine, and maybe one or two others that I haven't that I haven't clocked. That she has developed a career in all of those, and that really gave me the insight into just how flexible and varied the physician associate role can be, compared to doctors who terminally differentiate, don't we? We do our training, get a CCT, and then we are something. I am an emergency physician. However much 
emergency medicine overlaps with acute medicine or pediatrics or critical care medicine. And of course, it overlaps a little bit with each of those. I am an emergency physician and I can't become one of those, a specialist in one of those other specialties without completing the whole specialty training program in that specialty. And so, of course, very, very few doctors ever do. This PA had made her career out of cancer and I don't doubt had taken massive expertise from each preceding role into her next role. And she was probably in her mid fifties and just was seemed to me to be the most well-rounded clinician you could ever imagine fulfilling the role that, that she fulfilled. And I met a guy in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest and I was introduced to him because he'd had an interesting career. He'd uh, been in the, the US Army and some, some of your listeners will know that, that the, the PA profession in the, in the States was really born out of army medics coming back from Vietnam with incredible training and experience at the same time as there was an unmet need for trained and experienced medical folk in particularly rural US areas. And there was some really insightful people who, who developed your profession to marry that need with that availability. And he'd been, um, if not one of those people, he might not have been, I'm not sure that he was one of the very first, but he'd come very early on anyway into, into the PA profession. And it started as a PA just at the time that interventional radiology was becoming a thing. And he, he had, I think he told me he'd had his sort of first PA job or one of his first PA jobs, basically as the vascular access guy for the interventional radiologists. Um, and in a fee-for-service world, such as the, the US healthcare system, the radiologists could, could earn more money essentially by being able to treat more patients. And if, the, if they had two rooms and the PA was able to get the vascular access on one patient, let the radiologists do their thing while they were getting the vascular access on the next patient, and then go back to removing and closing the vascular access on the first patient while the radiologist moved on to patient two and so on through, through the duration of the list, they added immensely to the capability of, of the radiologist. And he did that for a few years until interventional cardiology began to become a, a thing. And he moved to do the same with the cardiologists and of course was able to do some teaching of the cardiologists because he was the expert in the, in the vascular access at that point, having worked with the interventional radiologists for a time already. After a while, he, he went over to cardiothoracic surgery and worked with them for a while and was you know, integral in harvesting the, the veins for coronary artery bypass grafts and, and so on. And I think that you know, opening and closing surgical first assistant type role. And then the cardiologists were technology advanced and implantable devices like defibrillators became, became small enough to be to be implanted but when they first came on the market the batteries were so big that you had to put the battery in the abdomen and then you had to tunnel the leads through into the through into the chest and and the, uh, yeah I, I didn't know any of this either and the cardiologists needed um somebody to do that for them so they asked the cardiothoracic surgeons to come and help and the cardiothoracic surgeons i think probably understandably weren't terribly interested in that that they they felt that was rather beneath them as cardiothoracic surgeons I think um, and and so the 
but they said yeah we've got this amazing pa who'd be it'd be really good at doing that for you and so this pa went back to cardiology and became the sort of first assistant in the device insertion world uh, and then, of course, because he was assisting all the time, he got very good at it. And then he learned how to do the whole procedure on his own. And he didn't need um, the cardiologist there anymore. And what was amazing to me, James, was that here was this guy coming towards the end of his career. And he taught everybody in the Pacific Northwest. So there are sort of five or six states that make up that, if you like that, what we might think of as a deanery, I suppose. Um, and if you were a cardiology fellow, so a, a resident, a trainee at the end of your training and you wanted to learn device insertion before you went off into your independent practice in one of the towns in the Pacific Northwest, or one of the cities in the Pacific Northwest, you learned from this guy. You went to the University of Washington and this PA was teaching these cardiologists how to put devices in. And I thought, yeah, that's just amazing. And that's the potential that this profession has. Absolutely. Really good example of healthcare professionals working collaboratively rather than competing competitively. And a real understanding that it doesn't matter what your badge says, doesn't matter what your role is. What patients need is people who've got the competency to do the job at hand. And I think the sooner we can get beyond that being something that only a such and such can do, you can't do that because you're only doctors can do that. Doctors can't do that, whatever it is, you know, actually it's about who's competent to perform whatever it is that needs, that needs doing. That speaks to the power of the, to the physician associate who stays in post, who stays in the role and they can develop their, their competencies. They get good at things and can share that knowledge with other members of the team. Of course it does. And the ability for the experienced PA in the team to be able to offer training and supervision to generations of junior doctors as they as they pass through a particular service. Absolutely. Can I ask you a little bit more about the expansion programme? Um, what was involved? What happened? How successful it was? Yeah, so we brought 28, I think, 28 physician assistants, experienced physician assistants from the US over to the UK and deployed them never alone because one of the things I was really keen on was that we should make sure that there were communities of practice. And I think if you have a lone PA in a service, it's very difficult for anything ever truly to become the PA's job because somebody always has to be able to do it when they're on leave. And I think if you have more than one PA, then there can be some cross cover and there can be things that really are. This is things that the PAs do. So we partly for partly for moral support, partly for cultural support, partly for professional support and partly to create that community of practice. We deployed um, these PAs into a few different um, institutions in the northwest, in northwest London and in the East Midlands. How well were they received? What happened once they were in post? So they were received really very well in all the organisations that they went to because the programme team did a lot of work to make sure that they had champions and advocates in each organisation. Um, 
there had to be buy-in from the medical director before we would even explore the possibility that that a site might be selected as one of our as one of our NPEEP sites and so they were well received because the organizations were ready to receive them and had made a financial commitment to fund those PAs for the two years of the program and so we're invested quite literally in making the role a success and so when they arrived in the organizations they were we spent quite a lot of time and effort matching PAs to organizations so we had the right PAs with the right experience in the right specialties going to uh, hospitals that needed that experience in those specialties and we made a great success of it I think um, really helped create an understanding of the PA role in those organizations where where our expansion program PAs spent their two years. I think people would recognize that from where you were back when the National Physician Associate Expansion Programme first started, things for the BA profession in the UK now have changed dramatically in terms of the expansion programme, the input from Health Education England, the number of PA courses and schools that have popped up across the UK now, and the number of graduates that are coming through the system. It's much bigger and much more widely accepted um, across the NHS system as a whole now, I would say. There are still some uh, hospitals, some GPs, there's still some hesitance or areas that haven't cottoned on to physician associates at the moment. And it's, we're getting better at this, but I think if you went to one of those organisations where that you've just described, where PAs haven't really flagged on the radar, and you said to many specialties and I it's probably not fair of me to pick to pick any one but there'd be many specialties where if you said to the clinical lead of that specialty have you got an advert out on NHS jobs looking for middle grade staff or junior staff they'd say yes and if you said and have you um had that advert out before now recently in the last year maybe and they'd say oh yes some of them, in fact, some of them would say they have a rolling advert out there. And you say, do you get many applicants? No, not many. And have you managed to appoint many people from the applicants that you have had? And almost always the answer again is, is no. And so I'd like to try and challenge people to think about what to do, because if what you have is an advert out on NHS jobs for middle grade doctors, that doesn't get the caliber or number of applicants that you're looking for, then that's likely to continue. So either you've got to do something to make the role more attractive to those doctors that you're trying to recruit, and that's difficult because there are very few of them, or you've got to think about how you can otherwise fill that role. And often when people describe what they're looking for, it is, it is a role that could be filled by an experienced PA. Um, but the challenge is you need to develop them to get that experience. Um, a new grad PA isn't going to be able to fulfill some of that middle grade experience, of course. The, the single thing I'm most proud of, James, is the fact that we give 
our physician associates the same access to study leave budgets as we give our doctors. So there's study leave time and money for PAs to further their continuing professional development. So they get better, our patients benefit, they benefit and the other clinical staff that they work with benefit. One of the things that, that I've done to try and help our organisation see a slightly longer term is to offer what I call the buy one, get one free PA model. So if a if somewhere in our organisation can find the funding for a PA, then I will, from central funds, match that with the funding for another. And that means we don't have these loan PAs that, that worry me of, about how they are professionally supported and how their role develops if they're on their own. Um, and we've got successful PA programmes, I think, in acute medicine and in paediatrics, and we're developing the PA role in other areas of our organisation as well. So I think PAs add a whole new dimension to the medical workforce in a, in a hospital. Of course, they're not doctors, but they understand and are trained in the medical model, and they provide an amazing continuity for teams when the doctors rotate and of course to start with they require that initial investment like any new member of any new of any team does but then what we're seeing again and again across our organization and I hear it in other organizations as well is a, a body of experienced expert clinicians who can provide leadership training development and clinical support continuity of care, particularly at handover times and rotation times, and really can develop um, in the role. And I think that's key. Nick, thanks so much for joining me today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, James. You're welcome. And if people want to get in touch with you, if they've heard this episode and have questions for you, are you happy for them to reach out? Yeah, of course. At Dr. Nick Jenkins on Twitter is probably the easiest way. Perfect. And I'll leave your contact details in the show notes for people to find below. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Precision Associate Podcast.